So if you, you know, you're at home and you're thinking, well, how do I determine if it's a cost or not? You've got to really look through the nexus, which is the connection between what you are spending and what that expense is for. And as long as you can create that connection between the income and the expense, and then obviously have a look at, well, am I using it a little bit personally as well? If you are, you take that out and strip it out of the cost and you claim the true representation of the connection between that cost and the income. That's pretty much the, the main thing people need to consider when identifying uh, what is a deduction. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash Right Insider, where we help you become a better property investor. And if you're interested in saving money and making money and being tax efficient with your property portfolio, then this is the episode for you. It's a great conversation I have with Jeremy Yarnazelli, who is the main tax guy when it comes to property. As far as I'm concerned, he knows what he's doing. And we talk about all kinds of stuff. What can you claim? How can you claim it? We talk about some real edge cases. How do you maximize your returns? How do you prepare for tax time so that you can get the best result and also how can you even split some of this stuff out over the course of a year so you can start making tax savings throughout the year? It's a great episode full of real practical, tangible, meaty, juicy advice. And so if you want to be a better property investor, then this is the episode for you. Now, before we get stuck into it, make sure you hit the subscribe button, whatever channel you are on, and possibly even more importantly, share this with someone. Just click the share button, copy the link, send it to someone, give this knowledge to somebody else to help them become a property, better property investor as well. And without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. And I'll see you on the inside. Welcome back to Dash.Insider. Joining me on today's episode is Jeremy Yarnazelli, the man with the hardest name in property tax, but also the greatest level of expertise. Jeremy, how are you? Very well, Goose, mate. What an introduction. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> mate, um, I'm lucky enough to be able to spend time with you and actually talk to you about my own personal uh, tax and stuff, as it re- particularly as it relates to, to property. And so um, I know that you are a, a wealth of knowledge on this specific topic. And so what I thought we should dig into today, specifically given the time of year that this episode's coming out, and I know this will date it if you're listening to this in six or 12 months time, but right now this episode is going to come out right around the middle of the year, right around tax time in Australia. And what I want to talk about is how can property investors prepare for tax time? Because I don't think many property investors are very organized and I'm not going to profess that I'm the most organized either. And so what I want to use this, use, use this time to do is like help people get better prepared, better organized, know what's going on so they can maximize their opportunity, particularly given we're in an environment with higher interest rates, with lower nominal cash flow on assets, the tax conversation becomes a much more interesting and significant one. So let's start. What do people need to do to start getting ready for tax time? All right, beautiful. So look, a lot of the hard work, hopefully anybody listening, should be done throughout the year as opposed at the end of the year. Uh, But nevertheless, there's lots of schedules out there, lots of free content available for many people who can summarize the information that they've been provided either on a monthly or annual basis. So your property manager would be sending out diligently your monthly statements, which hopefully you may have been reconciling and, and data entering into your Excels or software that you're using on a monthly basis, because we all like to treat our properties like a business as opposed to an investment. However, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you there, Jeremy, and I hope you don't mind. I'm going to interrupt you lots during this episode because I want to pick it. up. I want to pick up on interesting points. What you talked about there was getting your statements from your property manager. Now, one thing that people should be doing, in my humble opinion, and I'd love to get your opinion is trying to push all of the property expenses through the property manager's accounts. So what that means is instead of getting um, the rates notice sent to you individually, you can get it sent to the property manager. So it gets paid, you know, you can get it paid out of your rent. You may need to contribute funds into the trust account in order to pay it. But what you end up with is you end up with a statement that has all of the property's expenses on it versus having a statement which has got some of the property's expenses on it. And then you get mailed some somewhere else and you get all these different stuff in all of these different places. So just as a way to simplify the whole exercise is just when you're setting up, when you're setting up, when you get your, when you buy your investment property and you're getting your property manager on board, you should in the very immediate instance be saying, I want all, I want 100, 100% of the expenses related to the property to go through the property manager. That's rates, that's water, that's maintenance, that's everything. Even if something breaks, we had something uh, on one of our properties 
there was a there was a there was a leak or whatever, and it was going to cost you know several thousand dollars to fix it. And we still said, "Hey, can we do this through the? We'll send the money to you. We'll send the money to the trust account, but can we pay it through that so that we've got one record of all of the of all of the expenses?" What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of it, and I personally do that with my own portfolio because in the end, we're paying a management fee to the property managers, not just to collect rent and send it to us, or maybe deal with any issues that may arise once in a blue moon. But we're also requesting or guiding them or asking them to also manage the expenses of the property as well. So what you've made and what you've directed as a point, Goose, is brilliant because I see so many people, they control the council rates themselves, they control the water rates themselves and many clients I'm going back and asking them, guys, have you had a water efficient testing being done on your property? The answer is yes. Well, did you know that you could actually be claiming back the water usage as a reimbursement to you as opposed to paying your tenants water usage as well? So there's a, a plethora of different benefits that arise from the property manager being able to oversee and pay all the costs, not just from a summary point of view, but also from a compliance point of view as well. Um, so a big, big point that you raised, guys, you're getting your monthly statements. Ideally, hopefully the property manager's paying all your costs, puts things all in one place on a nice, neat, nice, neat monthly statement, which will then translate and correlate to an annual statement as well. So you'll be collecting all your annual statements uh, you'll be collecting any expenses that you have paid as well. Obviously, you'll need to keep any receipts. Now, what the tax office have been doing for the last couple of years, Goose, is they're picking out key areas and always property investors are in the radar of the tax office. And what they've been doing with the uh, the professional software that the property manager has been using is that requested for the professional software providers to actually send all of the data to the ATO so that they can start to data match what people are receiving on a property manager statement and what they're disclosing on their tax return. And what it is creating, Goose, is a significant discrepancy because people are paying council rates or water rates themselves, but the property managing software is saying that the expenses and income is one thing. So ideally, for everyone listening, get your property manager to be paying all those particular costs. There will be hiccups. Uh, my property managers, they haven't paid sometimes the council rates on time or the water rates on time, and they've always diligently either remitted the penalties or fines, or they've paid it out of their own back pockets, because it is a service that we are paying them to provide. So that's one thing. Uh, another major thing that I see a lot of people have to gather is all the interest for their investment properties. That's obviously one of the major costs that we have in holding investment property, and one of the major costs that will help us rebate a portion of the tax benefit we receive, and as a refund that we get. Big yeah, things so that I think... So before we move on from that point, because I actually think that most property investors don't, you've got the curse of knowledge, right? Most property investors don't realize that you can claim the interest expense against uh, against your tax. So collecting the interest expense is one thing. I'd love to kind of dig into that a little bit more, like how do people collect it? But then also, can you can you just kind of touch on that point as well? Because I think there's a lot of stuff that people aren't thinking about that they can actually claim against the income on their property and actually use to their advantage when it comes to tax. Can you talk about the interest expense for a moment? Yeah. So obviously any interest that we incur on investment property that we own, the interest is tax deductible. And there's a number of other expenses that are tax deductible as well. And I'll go through some common things I see people miss. Land tax is one that I see people miss all the time. Borrowing costs. Now what borrowing costs are are any costs associated with obtaining the loan. And in most cases that might be settlement fees and the larger one being lenders mortgage insurance. Lenders mortgage insurance is a premium that we pay to the banks capitalized in our loan for the luxury of them insuring against us defaulting. So it's a and cost you can claim that against your tax? You can claim that against your tax, and that's a balance that you claim over five years. So lenders mortgage insurance, even though they haven't physically paid the cash, it has been capitalized into your loan, which means your loan balance has gone up. And that portion of LMI you claim it over a period of five years, generally. That says, it's crazy because so many property investors don't like the idea of paying LMI. They're like, oh, lenders, mortgage, insurance, it's this extra cost, it's extra few thousand dollars, whatever it case, whatever the case may be. But when you actually look at the net benefits, so number one, usually it's because you're leveraging higher, which can lead to obviously this increased risks. So I'm not suggesting go just go arbitrarily just leverage higher, but you, you can obviously can leverage higher, which can increase your total uh, total return because you, you're you're more leveraged. Also gets capitalized into the loan in most cases, at least, which means that in effect, your tenants are paying for the lender's mortgage insurance anyway. And then on top of that, you get to claim it as a as a tax deduction. And it sounds pretty bloody good. 
There is. There's benefits towards it. And I've seen people being able to accelerate their portfolio substantially because they've been able to utilize the cash that they've received or haven't had to pay out and focus that towards other deposits for other investments. Uh, I used utilized LMI in the very early stages of my own portfolio. And that was for me during my rapid and growth expansion of buying more properties because I wanted to retain the capital, create, create a buffer just for my worst case scenario, but then utilize a large portion of that capital left over for future properties. So LMI is something that we definitely can claim. Um, now, council rates, water rates, they're all arbitrary. Insurance on the home, landlord insurance on the home. Again, any gardening costs, I do see that missed quite a bit when people are purchasing, say, for instance, any plants, pots for their investment properties that can be claimed as a tax deduction. And some of the largest stuff that I see get missed quite often and that's a conversation I have with clients are the sundry costs involved with owning an investment. Now, what are those sundry costs? You might have to use a portion of your internet to maintain your property portfolio. You might have to buy manila folders. You might want to be buying pens, pencils, and stationary items. These are all the little things that you may utilize to help maintain your property investment portfolio, which can be claimed as a deduction. Also, any subscriptions. So some people might subscribe themselves to an RP data, for instance, or some people might subscribe themselves to property seminars. As long as it's uh, in contrast with gaining more knowledge around your investment property portfolio, the maintenance of it, and also gaining the ability to have more skills to develop or grow your property portfolio, then the ATO do allow the, the investment or business portion of that cost to be claimed as a tax deduction. That's really interesting. So if somebody goes and does a property education course, they can claim that against the income in their portfolio or claim it as a tax deduction? Yeah, claim it as a deduction against the property portfolio itself. As long as it relates directly to maintaining and growing your property portfolio, if you're doing a real estate course, for instance, because you want to change your occupation from a nurse to a real estate agent, then that unfortunately can't be claimed as a tax deduction. Even though it's in the real estate space, it's more in relation to your profession as opposed to the maintenance of your investment property portfolio. Yeah, but for example, if you wanted to, if you have uh, an existing, because what we're talking about is claiming it against an existing on and ongoing and established business. And the easiest way for, for, for people to think about this is to not think about it as a bunch of properties that you've got in a property portfolio, but to think about it as a business. Now, if you went and started a business, now let's say you've got a business that sells chickens online. I don't know, whatever you decide your business is going to be, right? But <laughs> so, right, you're going to be thinking about what are all the things that I need uh, for that? I, you know, I may... I may need to use my computer. Now, that computer might be used 90% personal and 10% business. So maybe you can claim 10% of the computer cost or as a capital expense, internet, power, stationary, insurance, time, all of these kind of things. They're going to be factors that relate to the functional operation of the business. Now, the way any business works, let's say your chicken online business um, is making a million dollars in revenue in a year, but let's say you've got $900,000 of, uh, of business expenses, you're going to be able to claim those expenses against the income of the, of the business as, uh, as against your tax. So then you're only left with the, with the profit component that you, you're truly paying tax on. And so it's a really interesting thing to, to kind of tease out. And I might not have explained that perfectly and you can correct me wherever, wherever that needs to be corrected, but, it's a very interesting way to kind of consider it. And all, of course, as part of that, and we've got a big team and we pay for training and education for the team as well, as it relates to the the nature of the business, that becomes a reasonable and justifiable expense in the context of the growth, the maintenance, the training, the advancement of the of the business. So in that, go on. No, you're just saying it's correct. And, and I think the, the big word that people need to make sure that they're understanding is nexus. And nexus is the connection between the expense and the generation of income. So if you, you know, you're at home and you're thinking, well, how do I determine if it's a cost or not? You've got to really look through the nexus, which is the connection between what you are spending and what that expense is for. And as long as you can create that connection between the income and the expense, and then obviously have a look at, well, am I using it a little bit personally as well? If you are, you take that out and strip it out of the cost and you claim the true representation of the connection between that cost and the income. That's pretty much the the main thing people need to consider when identifying uh, what is a deduction and what is not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, 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 the education piece is super interesting. And I think that because that's – I'm picking up on that because that's a new one that I hadn't actually thought of before. And, you know, obviously to your point, if you're – 
currently a nurse and training to become a real estate agent, well, that's that's a career. That's a career training kind of thing. That's separate to your property portfolio. It's not directly related to the to the nexus, the the the, the income generational growth of the portfolio. But for example. If you had a real estate business, i.e. a portfolio of, of, of real estate, and you wanted to consider learning how to do development, maybe because you want to add, uh, you want to be able to develop some of the properties in your portfolio or some other kind of thing like that, that could be a reasonable thing because that's learning personal skills that are related to the develop the ongoing advancement of your property portfolio. Is that a kind of a fair point? Yeah, Is there any other examples fair, that you it's might- It's a fair point. And, and people attending, say, property seminars, for instance, those property seminars, again, you're gaining knowledge to maintain your portfolio. And again, the tax office wants you to gain more knowledge. Why? More knowledge you gain, more income that you generate. And, and Goose, what happens when you have more income from your properties? There is obviously more tax that the government gets to get from it. So that's a win-win um, for, for many people out there. And I, I think the, one of the common things I see people doing now at the moment is they are paying for, say, for instance, reports or property reports or Excels to help maintain their property portfolio. Just to you know, to make you aware, they are deductible because again, it's all part of the maintenance. It's all part of you being able to maintain your numbers accurately and obviously present them right for the tax office. So, what's the what is the defining um, traits that would allow you to claim something like that? So, let's just use an example. Let's say I'm an aspiring property investor. I don't yet own any properties, um, but I'm serious about it, and I am will consider myself in this example. A startup, right? So a startup may be pre-revenue, i.e. pre-property in this case. It might be, and, it, and they're trying to get off the ground. In a, in a startup context for a business, the, the expenses, if I had to go buy pens or whatever, would still be business expenses. I'd just be running the business at a loss. So, but the, the, the defining characteristic would be, have I registered the business name? Have I got, have I registered the, uh, have I, you know, registered the company? Have I got accounts set up? Like, have I set it up as a company? So what is the, what is the defining characteristic of people being able to apply this kind of thinking in their property portfolio? Yeah. So it's the current present generation of income. So if they are just a first time investor and, they're spending all this money on education or they're spending all this money on all these Excels, pens, calculators, you know, computers, laptops, software, whatever it may be, because there's no current generation of income in your investment property portfolio because you haven't bought your property just yet, then those costs unfortunately become a bit more of a sunk cost. But when you've got your generation of income, you've got your first property investment or multiple property investments with inside your portfolio then you can start to claim those costs against the current generation of income. Can you capitalize those expenses at a later date? So let's just say, um, and for the purposes of this, we'll say it all happens within one financial year. Let's say, in, and I don't have a property portfolio yet, and I'm just getting started, and I spend the first six months of the financial year spending money, doing courses, doing all this kind of stuff, and then within that same financial year, I get the, like, and up until I've bought a property and I've got a going concern, all of those would just be, personal expenses, but if I kept the record of them and that resulted in me then buying a property, which then was the going concern, could I then capitalize capitalize those expenses? But you know I'm going to ask you lots of really left-field yeah, questions. Yeah, and they're good, no, they're good questions to ask because I get that quite often. And the answer is no, you can't capitalize ex- those costs because it still comes back to the overarching and fundamental statement from the tax office that to claim a deduction, the property must be either rented or available for rent, which is that current and present generation of income. So there, that's one of the main overarching rules. And that's, again, for people who, for instance, have bought a property and let's say they choose not to rent it out. Uh, they choose not to utilize it at all for rental purposes. They choose not to even put on the market um, to get it rented. Then any costs associated with that property don't become a deduction. They become a capital cost and then claimed when the property is sold. But that's where a property is already owned already. If the property hasn't been owned already and someone's just doing, you know, all the normal things that we all do, learning and getting ourselves ready for the property portfolio we'll create, those costs are sunk, um, not to be obtained moving forward in the future until we then have those costs moving forward where we've got a property again available or currently generating income. But it's a, it's a great question, Goose, because I get it all the time, especially for oh. from new investors. Well, here's a, I'm going to throw another really left field one at you. So, so get ready for this kind of a curveball. What if someone owns an owner occupier property, but instead of just living in the property and paying the mortgage, what if 
they decide, no, no, this is an investment property and we're just renters in this property. And then they start paying the rent. Therefore, uh, they start paying the rent back to the the entity that owns the property or whatever. Like if you can kind of structure it that way, does that become an income generating asset? Um, and then does that open up the capacity for them to claim some of this kind of stuff? The, the answer is yes, it does. Yes, it does. And you can, I haven't seen many circumstances or any circumstances in my years where I've seen a person rent the, the property off themselves. I actually don't even know if you can do that. However, if you've got a separate legal entity where you are a shareholder or a beneficiary of a trust or a company, for instance, and the property is owned in that trust or company, then yes, you can rent the property from your entity because it is separate legal entity. Uh, it needs to be all above board with market value rent achieved. If it's not, then you must prorate the costs and expenses accordingly. But the answer is yes. Yeah, those costs would be tax deductible if you were to rent a property from an associated entity at an arm's length distance value, all things above board. Yeah, so the, the key thing in there, though, is that the the property would need to be owned by someone other than you personally. So if you personally own the property, you can't personally own the property and then personally pay rent back to yourself. That would just be, that would be farcical. But if you had a family trust, for example, if you, if you had, a, if you had a, um, a discretionary trust or something like that, which owned the property and was a separate legal entity, and then you as the human individual was renting off that entity, then that could work, but that would require that you think about that kind of stuff in advance, probably when you're thinking about buying the property and how you're going to kind of structure that part of the wealth equation. Absolutely. And look, there's a couple of clients that I have that do do that. They're in very high risk industries, you know, high end professionals, things happen all the time. And that's a way that they choose to protect their assets. Um, it's not probably recommended for most people. I'd probably say 99% of the population, it wouldn't be recommending something like that, but the very small minority for reasons of risk, it's very common very common. Property developers do it all the time. You know, the property is not owned by them nor their spouse. The property is owned in a separate legal entity and that's a way that they, they protect their assets in most cases from any litigation or pending litigation that may occur in their, their business life or, their, or the businesses that they're associated with. But very small minority would do that for the majority of people out there. It's, it's a scenario that we, we put them, probably wouldn't entertain. Yeah, nice. So, Okay, so what else can people? What else should people be thinking about to optimize, to maximize, to to get ready for tax time? So the big one is, and this is where I, I see the pitfall with everybody is understanding what loan is deductible and what loan is not deductible. Um, and this is coming back to one of the things that we'll talk about uh, with the extended compliance program that's been introduced by the ATO. But what I'm seeing many people do is if they've extracted equity, say for instance from their own principal place of residence i.e. a non-deductible debt. But if that equity that's been extracted has been utilised for the purpose of investment, i.e. for the deposit and costs and buyer's agency fees and solicitor fees, if that equity used for that investment property number one has been purchased, even though it's secured and tied against your own home, the interest on that equity that you've extracted is tax deductible and so on and so forth. And I see this happen all the time with people with multiple property portfolios they may have extracted equity from investment property number one to purchase investment property number two. They go ahead and claim all the interest that they've incurred on investment property number one in investment property number one. However, and again, this has got to follow me on this, guys, the interest incurred on investment property number one is not all in relation to investment property number one. Because remember, we've extracted equity out of investment property number one to buy investment property number two. We need to make sure that you're working with your mortgage brokers to create the right splits so you can correctly identify what loan is associated with what property and what interest is associated with what property. And by doing so, you'll be able to claim the correct amount of interest on the right property. And there are reasons why for this, because each property might be structured differently, might be structured in 100% wife's name, husband's name, partner's name, might be 50-50, 70-30 might be structured with investment property number two in a trust. We need to make sure that we get the interest deduction right. And also we're claiming all the interest accordingly, especially if we've uh, extracted equity from our own home to purchase an investment. That is one thing I see all the time. And the way that I review that is that when I ask the question to the client, hey, what did you buy this property for? I bought it for 500,000. Okay, the loan on it I can see is 400. How did you fund that $100,000 deposit plus the associated costs? 
they say, oh, Jeremy, uh, we utilized all the equity from our own home to fund this property. Okay, not a problem. Can I start to now receive the information of the funding balance? And that's when I start to look at their own home and no splits were created. Or I need to do a proratement to say, well, their own home loan started at 600. It's now uh, 717, for instance. Well, that 117,000 is the gap of my $500,000 purchase for investment property number one, less the 400K loan attached to it. So to, to make it nice and short, for the people that are listening, ensure that you understand the deductible and non-deductible portion of your loans and ensure that you're claiming the right loan against the right property, even if you have done all these equity splits to finance all these deals. So that's awesome. How does that work if you are like, let me let me rephrase the question. Does it change anything if you are if you have multiple different trusts, for example? So let's say you've got three or four different trusts. Maybe you've got one for New South Wales properties, one for WA properties, and one for commercial and whatever. You've got a few different trusts, so you've got a few different um, entities in effect. Plus, you may own your PBR PBR in your personal name, for example. So you may have this kind of like a range of companies that exist within your broader sort of property conglomerate for lack of a better for lack of better term how how does that attribution of tax liability in that context around the equity usage how does that how is that impacted by that or is it just yeah kind of in, doesn't matter? in most cases it will come and represent the true net income at the end but it's getting the the disclosure right um, because you, you, you want to be able to really see how your property portfolio is performing as a standalone property or as a standalone entity. Um, you don't want to load up one entity with all the costs, for instance, because that's where all the equity has been extracted from. And then you've got, say, three other entities which are you know, quite substantially positively geared because trust number one with property number one's funded all of them. And there are things around lending that I encourage people to chat with their mortgage broker around it to understand, well, what are the implications of showing, you know, one trust with a heavy loss and then three trusts with potentially profits. There are many things out there that brokers can utilize with inside banking policy to even gain better access to better loans or greater loans. But all in all, you know, Goose, we need to make sure that we're representing the entities or the individual or the properties in that instance in their true nature. Because you as a property professional, I know you create a huge amount of reports for your clients, especially going through, you know, property strategies and where they're going to end up in the years to come. You need to make sure that you get the accurate data to create the accurate assumptions so that you can put them on the trajectory for growth. Um, you know, you need to make sure that if there's properties that need to be on the chopping block or there's properties that need to be better utilized in a different way and i know that you guys recommend sometimes where this particular property could be really ideally from ideal from a granny flat or other things or you might say that this particular property has not seen the growth because they bought it pre-buyer's agent they had no idea what they're doing um, and it's showing a really 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 terrible return but it might not be it might actually show in a decent return um, but nevertheless you need to have the right inputs to get the right outputs and getting the numbers right with the right allocation of the loans is important yeah, I guess that's kind of like where I was sort of thinking that there would be the implications because if you let's just say you do have, for the point of this discussion, like say three different trusts, right? And one of them you've just been harvesting all this equity out of, and so that that trust is or that that entity is deeply negative on a kind of like a true cash basis. But then you've attributed all of the equity into these other um, trusts to buy properties, and you've used all this equity, and the LVRs are great, and they're all cash flow positive. In fact, that might not be tax true, if that makes sense, because you might actually have to. Yeah, okay, correct. And That's if you a- even if you evened all those trusts out with the right numbers, they may all be positive. And if they're all positive, there's significant lending benefits. Well, they might all be negative too. They might all be negative too. That's correct. And again, that's something you work with your accountant um, and your property professionals to see why or what things we can do to resolve those issues. Yeah, yeah, but it's what's really important is that people are pragmatically realistic about their about what their situation is. I think it's really important. Let me ask you another question: How does the, all of the stuff we've been discussing in terms of including claimability of things and you know preparation for tax time? How does that differ if you only own your properties because you could only own one, maybe two properties in your personal name versus all of your properties are in uh, a trust or some other kind of uh, entity. Like, how does that differ? Is is one better than the other from a 
from a claimability perspective or is it, or is it kind of the same? How does that kind of work between those two different concepts? Yeah, so in theory, it should all be the same because we go back to what we first stated earlier on. It's the nexus. It's the connection between the expense and the generation of that income. However, the compliance around those various different entities are very different. Trusts have to provide and, and normally should have a financial set of accounts with a P&L, rental statements, for instance, and a balance sheet. Also, the notes to the accounts and then a tax return gets prepared. Many people are buying properties in their self-managed super fund, a bit more compliance involved, again, with an auditor now to look and review at all the numbers to ensure everything's compliant with the, from the SISAC point of view. Um, so there's some time involved in there. And then personal returns are a, little, a lot simpler, uh, but they come with their own set of challenges as well to ensure that the name of the ownership is done correctly. We're seeing many people who have bought the property, say, for instance, 100% in the wife's name, but because they've got the loan 50-50, they automatically think the property is 50-50. So you've always got to go back to the contract to review that. So compliance is one of the major things, the level of compliance involved for those various different entities and ensuring that you're getting things done all at once. And the reason for that is if you do have profits that you are generating, say, for instance, in a trust, all trusts must distribute profits or they will face a substantially high tax rate. Um, so you need to ensure that you're factoring that into your overall tax planning strategy and getting the right distributions right pre-tax year from a trustee resolution statement all the way through to the actual physical distribution of the money once the returns are done. So compliance is the main thing. Mm, love it. What about residential versus commercial? Is one of them better from like a tax claimability perspective? Is it like, oh, if you've got commercial, man, you can claim all this extra stuff and it works out net net better, better or is residential better? Or is there kind of like in principle, sort of no difference? Yeah. How do you see the relationship between in, those two different categories? In principle, no difference. Uh, normally, in principle, no difference because, again, we go back to the Nexus comment. However, commercial properties, because it is, in most cases, carrying on enterprise, there might be some acceleration of depreciation on some of the costs in relation to the maintenance or potentially the improving of the commercial property that residential properties don't get. As I always mention to everybody, Goose, depreciation is just a timing difference. Um, whether you get that benefit over three years or 10 years, you're still going to get the same level of benefit just when it hits your back pocket from a timing perspective. Um, nevertheless, um, you know, that's probably the main difference between the residential and the commercial. Surely, though, just on that point, it's better to get it all on day one because if I was going to receive a million dollars in a dollar a day over a million days versus a million dollar in one day, I'd choose the million dollars in one day. Yes and no, and there are circumstances why I say yes and no, and I can come back to a client that I'm doing right now. They took a year off work, and that year off work is you know their, their income zero, their investment property, say for instance, is only generated them five or 10 or 15 grand worth of cash flow. At $15,000 worth of income, they're paying no tax anyways. Now, if they were to have an immediate deduction through depreciation on one of their commercial investment properties, then there would be no additional tax benefit that that client would receive. However, we now are in 2023, that client has worked a full year and receiving that upfront tax benefit now is obviously much more beneficial in 2023 as opposed to say 2022 when they weren't working. So it's also based on the circumstances of the individual and when to claim that depreciation or when to claim that certain expense. In some cases, we have no control, but in other cases, we do. Uh, but yes, in theory, as an investor and from an accounting perspective, uh, I want that money in my back pocket today. Yeah, nice, nice. Makes sense. Okay, cool. So we sort of went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but um, I think it was super useful and, and, and interesting. Going back to preparing for tax time. So we started out with basically get your get your state, divert all of your expenses as best you can through your property manager. That's good practice. Get your um, property management statements, get them on a monthly basis. Um, probably seek to do a, develop a monthly habit around reconciliation of your your property um, portfolio. Look transparently for everyone listening. That is the best practice. Gabby and I need to get better at that. And Jeremy is constantly telling us that we need to get better at um, making sure we've got our spreadsheets up to date. So, um, But it's definitely a good practice to, on a monthly basis, get all that stuff together. Make sure you're factoring in all of your sundries, all of these additional expenses and thinking about all of those other ways, all of those other operating expenses for your business. Are there any other things we need to be thinking about, Jeremy? Yeah, so and touching base on ensuring that we get the right interest being claimed for the deductible or non-deductible portion of loans. 
So they're the main things around <clears throat> the tax return itself and getting yourself tax ready. Depreciation schedules is a must. If you haven't had a depreciation schedule being done on your investment property and it is of an age, generally post 85, 87. So if your building or property has had a major renovation or was newly or was built pro, uh, post 85, 87, always encourage people to get a depreciation schedule or at least seek the guidance from a quantity surveyor. Most of the quantity surveyors out there or depreciation experts out there generally will not do the report if they cannot obtain you a level of benefit equivalent or more to the fee that they're charging. So I encourage everybody to do it. It's only once that needs to be done. The common question I get is, do I need to do it every year? No, it's a one-off fee. It's a one-off report that should last the life of the property while under ownership of you. So depreciation is definitely a must. Um, the, one of them- just to just 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 sorry, just to pick up on that point though, yep. the interesting thing about that is, of course, if you do any major works to the property as well, then you can then claim that. So, for example, you may buy an investment property, get a depreciation schedule done, and then I don't know something happens. You got to replace all the carpet in the property, for example. You can then that's an additional thing that you can then depreciate. Yeah, absolutely. So any costs that are, are capital in nature that you've spent, they are and can be depreciated with inside the tax return. You can choose to provide that information to the quantity surveyor or depreciation export you've u- expert you've used. Generally, they'll update it at no cost or very little cost. And also the accountant can prepare a depreciation spreadsheet with inside the return. Although an accountant is guided by, and this is very important now, an accountant is guided by the commissioner's handbook. Carpet has a depreciation rate of X, but a quantity surveyor, because they can assess the useful life themselves utilizing experience, they may say, no, that type of carpet from that type of distributor or supplier doesn't last 10 years like the tax office says. It only lasts five years. So they can actually choose to self-assess and accelerate that carpet's useful life, which means that you're getting the benefit in a shorter period compared to an accountant who has to follow the commissioner's handbook. Good. That's a good little bit of uh, good little bit of intel there. Nice. Okay, cool. So depreciation schedules as well. What else? Yeah, so depreciation schedules, generally the loan contracts that will determine whether you've got lender's mortgage insurance in there as well. And the settlement statements, a big thing for any new investor or any person who has purchased property in that financial year definitely obtain a copy of your settlement statement from your solicitor or keep it on file because there are costs that you can claim in relation to the investment property in relation to that property settling that financial year. So quite often there's a proratement and adjustment of council rates, water rates or body corporate fees. These are costs that you have maybe either reimbursed the original owner while when taking over the property and these are costs that you can claim in relation to your investment property. So your settlement statement Obtain it, provide it to your accountant, ensure that's with the annual package so they can pick up any deductions that have been incurred as part of the purchase of the property. And so what is the net benefit, generally speaking, on the operating expenses that we can claim? So for example, like all of the rates and water and interest and property management, all of these other operating expenses of the portfolio, let's just say for the point of the discussion, it totals up to $10,000 worth of claimable expenses. How can people think about what that is going to be worth to them? Because people not might not be actually really kind of thinking this through. And I'll talk about this from a different perspective just to paint a different example. So we do in our company, we do a lot of um, science and stuff like that, which means we're eligible for R&D tax incentives, which because we're doing research and development and doing heaps of weird and wacky, wonderful stuff. Now, for... R&D claimable things specifically, so there's a, there's a specification around what, what they are, we can claim up to 43 cents in the dollar on those specific expenses. So if you've got $100,000 of R&D expense, you can claim 43 grand of it, which well, changes the perspective on how you spend money in a certain sense, right? So how can people think about that as it relates to their property portfolio? If they're spending $10,000 on operating expenses on a, on a property, what is the, how can they sort of develop a mental model around what they can claim back. Yeah, so it's the it's the net figure at the end that the accountant's after. So if you've got, let's say for argument's sake, $5,000 rental income for the year and the total operating expenses were 10, then you have now put yourself into what they call a $5,000 negative geared position. And that includes the depreciation. We'll make it nice and easy. That $5,000 negative geared position acts as a deduction in your return. So now you have created a $5,000 tax deduction through the $5,000 income that you've earned 
less than $10,000 of expenses, created a $5,000 loss. Now, many investors assume that my properties cost me now $5,000 in cash. The tax office is now going to give me $5,000 refund. That's not the case. In Australia, we utilize what they call a marginal tax rate system. So between a person earning zero to $18,200, their tax rate's nil. So if you're, you made that $5,000 loss and you only earned five grand income through wages, you would actually receive no net tax benefit because you haven't paid any tax to start with. If you've earned $18,201 and 45 grand, so between that, those two ranges, then your net tax benefit would be 19 cents plus the 2% Medicare levy. So that's 21 cents. So that means of that $5,000, 21% of that $5,000 deduction would come back to you as a net refund. And again, between 45 and 120, where most Aussies sit, the tax rate is 34.5 cents, um, which is the including the Medicare levy, and you'd be receiving 34.5 cents or percent back on that $5,000 tax deduction. And again, as you go up the marginal schemes, 120 to 180, it's 39 cents, and 180 and above, it's actually 47 cents. So your marginal tax rate is what you'll receive back as a physical cash refund in most circumstances on the net position of how the properties performed that financial year from a tax perspective. So for a person earning 180 or above, they would be receiving 47% back on that $5,000 tax deduction goose. All right, let's break that down a little bit, a little bit simpler. And again, we're just going to use real basic maths here just so everyone can follow along at home. So let's say the property income is $20,000 in rent. Let's say the property expenses, and just for, for the simplicity's sake, we'll, we'll say that includes depreciation and all the, all the other bits and bobs, is $10,000, which means that there's $10,000 positive cash flow on the property. What happens to that? So, and let's say, let's say they're earning $120,000 a year. We're going to do a couple of scenarios. Yeah. So if they're on $120,000 a year, they now have a surplus income of $10,000. So they're Positive, their property is in a positive taxable position by ten grand. On that $10,000, they would have a tax obligation. Now I've got my trusty calculator in front of me. They would have a tax obligation of $3,450, which means their true net tax, their true net cash position of that property post-tax would be six and a half K. Okay, got it. So the 10K cash flow in that example would go down to six and a half K, then that because that gets added to the income. Let's flip it around. Let's say you've got a property that produces $10,000 of income, but it's got $20,000 of expenses in a year, and the person earns $120,000. What happens to that? Yeah, so then they would be receiving a net tax refund in this particular case of $3,450, which means that if we flip it around, the actual net out-of-pocket cash after the refund's taken into account would be six and a half grand. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm just going to pull on that thread a little bit. Interesting. I'm just going to pull on that thread a little bit at the moment because a lot of people have found themselves, particularly because of our rising interest rates, and interest rates are a deductible uh, expense. And so, with the increased interest component, which is raising operating expenses of properties, a lot of people's properties have gone cash flow negative. And I know that we've done a previous episode on this in the past, and I might link to that in the show notes because people can dig into that. It was a really great episode, so we don't need to cover over the entire uh, context there, but you know, if somebody's property portfolio is, let's say, cash flow negative by, we'll call it five thousand dollars, and they're only one hundred and twenty grand a year, what would what would their just a quick math on that? What, what so would their actual they would be? have a, a tax obligation of around about seven. Well, they'd get a tax refund of about seventeen hundred dollars. So in that particular case, that'd be net net cash loss of about thirty three hundred bucks. Yeah, okay, which definitely takes the sting out of it because you've got, broadly speaking, a third of your of your loss is you're going to get back intact. Can people claim that through the year or do they have to wait to the end of end of the financial year to claim it? Or yeah, can that's you a kind great of do question. This through the, the answer year? is yes, you can do it throughout the year. So it's called a PYG variation. A PYG variation is where you're telling the tax office of what you believe your future costs will be. And what will happen is they will determine what the potential benefit you'd be receiving at the end of the year. And rather than you getting a lump sum refund at the end, they would actually advise your employer to reduce the tax that they take out on a pay cycle basis. So therefore, rather than you getting at the end, you're getting that refund throughout the year as a reduction of the tax that you need to pay through your pay slip. So anybody out there with a significantly negative geared investment portfolio, which are requiring that tax refund to really be able to help fund the properties throughout the year, I encourage you to do a PYG variation. 
Um, for most people, if it's not a huge amount of out-of-pocket, then sometimes that refund as a bulk at the end of the return is a bit of that carrot on the stick to get A, your return done, and B, to put a bit of a lump sum into a buffer so you're not spending it. Yeah, but it could be a really good thing. I, I know what you're saying, like, you know, if it's significant and whatever, but I think for a lot of people, like cost of living has gone up, you know, there's more, you know, there's more kind of like household financial stress. A lot of people are still looking to get ahead. And, you know, the idea of a property being five grand negative versus being, you know, 3,700 negative, it's a big difference for a lot of absolutely, people. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. $1,700 would be, gro- you know, many people's groceries for the month. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, f- for people f- with a relatively small amount of effort to be able to start getting that benefit accreted to them on a monthly basis could make the difference between them buying an investment property or not buying an investment property, which, as you know, the opportunity cost in in not being involved can be huge. You know, like that. If that seventeen hundred dollars for just in this example is the thing that's going to stop you from buying an investment property, versus you you finding a way to get through that and then maybe making hundreds of thousands of dollars over that same period of time, it's it's a it's a huge opportunity to accelerate your wealth if you can kind of work out how to get past that. So I think it's a great bit of advice. Awesome. Jeremy, I've loved this chat. Have we missed anything else? Anything else you think we need to cover? Yeah, I just want to probably raise a couple of juicy things that the tax office will be doing over the Ooh. next 12 months. So juicy. You, you, we all heard the budget just recently from uh, from Jim Chalmers and it's, uh, allocated $240 billion to the ATO as part of the extended tax compliance program. Now, us as the small fry out there, Goose, and we are small fry in the world of the big tech conglomerates. Um, we're the ones who are actually, believe it or not, making up the bulk of the tax revenue for the tax office. Even though that the top tiers are making the bulk of the revenue, they're definitely not making the bulk of the tax. So that part of that extended pl- compliance program, what the tax, o- tax office have been doing is liaising with a lot of the providers of investment property tools. So for instance, property management softwares, Uh, They've been engaged and contacted by the ATO and they've sent all of the property management data that they have on all the investors around Australia. So that's number one where they're doing a lot of compliance checking. And just recently, they've advised the tax office that they'll be speaking with all of the banks to gather all of the information around investment loans. And the tax office is fairly certain that they're going to be picking up a substantial amount of people who have been claiming interest incorrectly. Now, interesting statistic came out about property investors just recently from the ATO that 90% of property investors out there have actually found to be making mistakes on their tax return lodgements. That's even with potentially an accountant uh, doing the work for them. 90% of returns that were reviewed from an investment property standpoint were found to be incorrectly entered. So it's important for everybody out there that you are liaising with your accountant, you are getting the numbers accurate. Because the ATO have a huge amount of budget now, and they're connect, they're contacting, connecting with all the relevant parties to correlate that data, and then utilise that data to pick up property investors. We've been in their radar for many years, and as a, it's always a bit of a, a theme, as interest rates rise, the ATO know there's going to be potentially substantial refunds walking out the door, and a way to minimise that revenue loss is to capture any mistakes. And that means there'll be a lot of audit activity uh, from all reports that we've read. They're looking to audit at least four out of every 10 returns that have property uh, investment properties in them over the next 12 to 24 months. So there'll be a lot of activity out there, especially wow. from the ATO's point of view. Hectic. 40% they're going to they're be auditing. Yeah. Unreal. It's Unreal. Four out of every 10 property investors will be audited over the next 12 to 24 months. Nice. Well, you know, it's good. It's going to make sure everyone's kind of doing the right thing. So I'm not, I'm not opposed to it, but it's definitely good to be aware. Uh, any other, any other juicy tidbits you want to share? Yeah. So I think um, a couple of the main things out there: scrapping reports. So what, pe- what a scrapping report is, and I do definitely encourage you to confirm it with a quantity surveyor. But if you're looking at knocking down a house and you're wanting to rebuild, you know, that duplex or triplex you've been dreaming of, if there's value with inside that house, you can get a scrapping report and receive a bit of a one-off lump sum. Uh, deduction in relation to any of the value that uh, it was still there at the time of knocking down the home. So that's something that I'm uh, advising clients of of all the time if they are looking at knocking down a property or potentially knocking down a shed that they've recently rebuilt. Now they're doing a granny flat uh, because they want to increase the revenue on their investment property. So scrapping reports, great way of getting a bit of a one-off tax benefit. Uh, Another thing that we are seeing is any insurances, such for instance, income protection insurance, not tied to the ta- uh, to the investment property itself, 
but a lot of people obviously are taking out income protection insurance as their loans are growing. Um, you can claim income protection insurance on your tax return. Um, so that's a, a positive deduction that you can get to aid in a little bit of your uh, tax refund. The main thing I say to all people out there, and again, investing through now nearly the last 15 years and seeing interest rates when I first started investing at nearly 8%, going as low as nearly 2%, now back up to where they are at 5 or 6 interest rates are cyclical. This is all part of the investment journey. Um, I encourage people that, you know, if you are getting large refunds, don't utilize that to go buy a car or a holiday. That is a buffer. That is a provision there to assist you to help hold the properties long term. Because like anything in the property industry, being cyclical, we will see interest rates where they are now, and then they will start to come down. And you want to be ready to take advantage of that next property market growth cycle, because I think it's very close and not far away around the corner. Yeah, I mean, to be completely frank, we're already starting to see the signs of it. I mean, I, I don't know that obviously the rate rising cycle has gone on a little longer than I think um, any of us really expected. I think I think most people were expecting it to be probably tapering off, petering off a little bit um, already. Um, as we record this, we're literally days away from another RBA announcement, so I won't. I don't know what that's going to be, but. Um, you know, there's there's probably better than even chance that it may go up again or at least um, stay the same. I don't think it's going to come down, that's for sure. But but to your point, you know, we're edging ever closer to that transition period where it will start to kind of taper off. And outside of that as well, you know, rents are going to continue to rise relative to the uh, interest rates as well. And we're already starting to see the effects of that in the market. I mean, we're seeing you know, less stock on market because um, sellers are holding now because they're feeling that way as well. With There's 40% less stock on the market in the markets that we're looking at than it was six months ago. There's massive amount of buyer activity already. There's a huge amount of demand. So you're already starting to see the start of it. Uh, and I think that it, based on the fact that we're not in optimal kind of set of circumstances right now, based on what we can see in the market right now in terms of heat and activity and demand, I think that when interest rates start to shift and start to roll a little bit downwards, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to go off and I oh, think people need to be, I, I need to be prepared it's for that. It's going to be a shaken, shaken bottle of Coca-Cola. It's going to, and when it pops, it's going to pop very quickly because you, you, there's just a, a massive condensing that's occurred over the last 12 months. And, and it's just when you see things come down or condense as quickly as it has with these interest rate cycles, it's just pent up excitement and pent up growth. And then it really, takes a new limit but mate, yeah yeah 100%. thank you yeah mate thank you it's been awesome as always really appreciate your time your wisdom your insights super valuable love it appreciate it and if anyone wants to reach out to you where, where should they go although are you too busy like what's going on here do you even want people to reach out to you what's happening <laughs> yeah oh, look i'm always happy and and always have provided an obligation free meeting to everybody i think that's a little bit of my way of giving back to society just being able to have a chat and giving 45 minutes of my time even though you may not become a client or we may not be the right accountant for you. I still like to give that little bit of 45 minutes words of wisdom where I can, those little one, one-liners or little top tips that I can provide to help you and see you grow. Uh, but if you want to get in contact with us, khipartners.com.au, follow the prompts to the contact page and uh, we're more than happy have a chat. Awesome. Jeremy, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Goose. 